Welcome to the Birmingham Vineyard Podcast. We hope you find it insightful and encouraging. If you want to find out more about us, head to our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Hi, everybody. Um, This afternoon, we're continuing on our series in James by looking at the first part of chapter two. So firstly, I'd like to start with a bit of an icebreaker. I don't know if you can see the little chap there, (laughs) but favoritism is unfairly treating some people better than others. You can see the four chaps, they're all exactly the same, but the guy in the middle has been unfairly chosen. So I just want to think about two things, first of all, in our groups. First question is this, do you think favoritism is something that happens rarely? Or have you seen a lot of it in your life? And the second thing is, can you think of any specific examples of favoritism and how has it made you feel? All right, so we'll just take five minutes in our groups and we'll have a think about those things and then we'll feed back. Who, in terms of question one, who thinks then that favoritism is something that happens fairly rarely or have you seen a lot of it in your life? A lot of it. Yeah. We, we were talking actually in our, in our group about our families, how favoritism can happen with kids, how some kids are a little bit favourites than, more than others. Um, but we're also talking, we, we, had, we went on holiday and uh, we went to a restaurant and we, we were just wondering why... Why have we put, been put to the side table? There's all these tables in the middle, and you know, it just that seems really odd. And then suddenly, all the people came in off yachts and started ordering 100 pound wine and you know, really expensive stuff. So ah, that's that's the reason. Didn't make us feel pretty good, I've got to say. So, how does that how does it make you feel when you experience favoritism? Sad. <laughs> Ah, that's a good, good point, Colin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. So um, let's have a look at the, what James says about favouritism. I'm going to ask Jacob, my willing helper, <laughs> to come and read um, from the word. My fellow believers, do not practice your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of partiality towards people. Show no favoritism, no prejudice, no snobbery. For if a man comes into your meeting place wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man with dirty clothes comes in, I and you pay special attention to the one who wears the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in this good seat and you tell the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by on the floor by my footstool. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with wrong motives? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and as believers to be heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you, in contrast, have dishonoured the poor man. Is it not the rich 
who oppress and exploit you and personally drag you into the courts of law? Do they not blaspheme the precious name of Christ by which you are called? If, however, you are really fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. That is, if you have an unselfish concern for others and do things for their benefit, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, prejudice, favouritism, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as offenders. For whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles in one point has become guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you have become guilty of transgressing the entire law. Speak and act consistently as people who are going to be judged by the law of liberty, that moral law that frees obedient Christians from the bondage of sin. For judgment will be merciless to the one to one who has shown no mercy, but to the one who has shown mercy, mercy triumphs victoriously over judgment. Recently, Emmy and I bought a new coffee machine in an online sale. It's probably one of the best things we have ever bought. The coffee you can make, I tell you, is brilliant. It's just like what you buy in the shop. But to get that coffee, it's a bit more complicated than putting your, your spoonful of instant into your mug. First of all, you have to grind your coffee beans. You put your coffee beans into a special metal basket with a handle called a group handle. It's true. Once you've got your group handle, then you've got to squish it with a tamper. Then, when you've squished your coffee, you have to put it in the right sort of angle, twist it, and then press the button on the machine. Then, water comes pumped out of the machine into the group handle, and your coffee comes out into your mug. And it's great. So recently, I came to use this wondrous device, bleary-eyed early one morning. So I turned it on. I carried out all the steps I've just described, putting my group handle in the right thing. And I pressed the button to make my coffee. All the lights came on, the machine started to make all the right sorts of noises, but no coffee came out. So, being British, I waited. Of course, that wasn't going to do anything because still no coffee was coming out. So, I started to panic slightly, thinking, hmm, have I put the group handle in the wrong angle? Have I over-tamped the coffee? Is there something broken inside the machine? I started to look around, and then I noticed something quite important. There was no water in the coffee machine. The machine wasn't broken. Nothing was coming out because there was no water in it to start with. And James's overarching message here is a little bit like that. 
He's saying that if you have God's power poured inside you, then what is going to come out in your life is that power. It will start to affect the way you think, the way you talk, the way you act. It will start to change everything. And people will notice, sometimes good, sometimes bad. So in James chapter 2, James paints a vivid, practical picture of this principle in action. In effect, what he's saying is, if you are showing favoritism, treating others better based on their wealth, their social standing, their power, you're a bit like this coffee machine with no water in it. You might be making all the right noises. And on the surface, you might look the part. But if you don't allow God's power into your life, there's a disconnect between your faith in God and how you are living. So let's turn to the picture. He's got two people walking in to a group of Christians, very much like us today. First guy looks like a million dollars. He's wearing nice, clean, shining designer clothes and he's throwing down some serious bling in the form of a gold ring on his hand. Everyone can see from his appearance this guy is seriously minted. He's at the very top of society. But the second guy is the complete opposite. James wasn't English, right? English wasn't even around when James was writing this. So he uses Greek. The word in Greek that he used is very specific. Are you ready for this? Because it's Greek. Patochos. Patochos. Sounds a bit like you're spitting something out, doesn't it? Well, that's intentional. Patochos does mean poor, and that's how it's translated. But English words struggle to convey what it was saying. It means really, 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 really poor. Patochos people were the lowest of the low. This guy's clothes wouldn't have been just dirty. They would have been vile because they were literally the only clothes he owned and he'd never washed them, ever, because he couldn't. See, Patochos were desperate people. Do you remember the story of Ruth? Ruth and Boaz. Ruth had really reached the low in her life. So low she'd had to scrounge around on some people's land just to find enough food to eat. Patahas people couldn't do that. They were of such low status, no one would even buy them as slaves. They were untouchables. No family, no friends, no skills. Reduced to begging just to survive. Society considered these people to be completely worthless, and this is the word that James uses. So just as the first person in James's picture occupied the highest rung in society, the second was literally the lowest of the low. And the Christians, they react very differently to these two different people. So the first guy, they honour him. They put him on a good seat. That just doesn't mean they're just giving somewhere comfortable to sit. Most people sat on the floor. So by putting him on the seat, they were saying, you're one of the top people. You're above everybody else. And they say, sit here 
amongst us. Not only was he given an elevated position, he was front and central. But the poor man, he's not told to sit here. He's told to go over there. He's not just not comforted. He's told to go away. The Christians make it clear there was a clique here. There was an in-crowd in you. You're not part of it. Even worse, some people even told him to sit by their footstool. Well, what are they on about there? A footstool was a bit like a puffet, okay? It's where you put your feet up. But in biblical times, feet were pretty monkey. Right? There was no showers, okay? So feet got pretty horrible, stinky, and disgusting. If you were anywhere near someone's foot, you were in a pretty dishonorable position. So when they were sitting, said, sit at my footstool, what were they saying? You, you're beneath us. See, none of this came as a bit of a shock, I'm sure, to James' readers. All who were reading it would have realised what he was describing was against God's law. Well, why? Because what he was saying is nothing new. In fact, the same message had been written down over a thousand years previously in the law first given to the Israelites. In Leviticus 19.15, it was written, You shall not do injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor show a preference for the great, but judge your neighbour fairly. Pretty straightforward. And in Deuteronomy, well, that described God. It said, the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, mighty and awe-inspiring God. And despite that, he shows no partiality, takes no bribe. And Proverbs, Proverbs I love because it's blunt. It puts it like this. To show partiality is not good. End of. But for a piece of bread, a man will do wrong. And so it would come as no surprise to those James was addressing this letter who behaved in this way that James says, you have become judges with wrong motives. You are committing sin. You might not think it, but you are. And the reason these Christians were finding themselves on the wrong side of God's law was that they were not allowing that power inside them to come out in the way they lived their day-to-day -day lives. Having faith in Jesus, living the life that God calls us to, is utterly incompatible with favouritism. So why? What's so wrong with favouritism? Well, I think there's three reasons. Number one, favouritism is looking at outward appearances instead of the heart. In James's story, the rich man's clothes literally shone. That's what the text really conveys. The gold in his ring would have reflected all the light of the room. He looked good. He looked just like you'd imagine a righteous person to look. But James points out, that guy who looked so good was actually oppressing God's church. He's exploiting Christians. Who's blaspheming the precious name of Christ? These guys look good on the outside, but inside they were evil. And that, by the way, 
should have been reflected in the way the Christians responded to those people. They weren't past God's love. What that rich man needed was someone to, to convict him of his sin, to confront him about the evil in his heart. Without that, it's impossible for him to enter the kingdom of God. By pandering to him, the Christians were doing the very worst thing they could possibly do. They were doing them no favours. In contrast, James points out that God had chosen people who were poor to be rich in faith. Whatever their outwards appearance might have suggested, on the inside, not only were they living lives of faith, they were being transformed by God's power. But they were rich in faith. Emmy and I have noticed, it's when we've been in the most difficult financial hardship that we've experienced the most significant spiritual growth in our lives. I think James is pointing that out. Those who trusted God, you know, who were faithful to turn up at that meeting despite experiencing the poverty they were going through, despite the hardship, they were rewarded with increased faith and maturity. So God calls us to pay attention to the way people are on the inside, to the way they act and what they say, not their outward appearance. Number two, favouritism is losing sight of what is truly valuable. God isn't saying here that owning money or possessions is inherently evil. He's also not saying that poor people are inherently good or that being poor somehow means you will definitely be saved. Rather, in James's story, God turns on its head what we think about riches. It's pretty clear that the Christians showing this favouritism were valuing what the rich man had, his gold ring on his hand, his nice clothes. They didn't value at all what the poor person had that couldn't be seen. However, although everyone in the story believed that the first man was the wealthy one, what God was saying is, Actually, he was the destitute. The rich, riches of the rich man could never bring him peace, hope, or true happiness. As Benjamin Franklin once said, money has never made man happy, nor will it. There's nothing in its nature to produce happiness. The more of it one has, the more one wants. The riches that guy had were powerless to save him for the consequences of his sin. No amount of money could buy God's forgiveness. No amount of possessions could bring him eternal life. His riches were temporary. And he could only enjoy them for the period of his life. Eventually they would fade and when he died, he would lose everything he'd amassed. In contrast, the poor believer was made truly rich by their faith. Because that faith not only brought them life, peace and hope in this world, but would lead to an eternal life with God. Nothing in this world can even compare to having that restored relationship with God and eternal life with him. Those riches would last forever. And let's think how vast eternity is. Eternity doesn't end after 100 years, or 1,000 years, or 4,000, which, by the way, is roughly how long writing has existed. 
It won't end after 10,000 or 100,000 or 1 million or 1 billion or 1 trillion. It won't ever end. So what does ha having up to about 100 years or so of riches and comfort on this earth mean in the context of eternity? It's like a matchstick floating in a vast, endless ocean. After 100 billion years of perfect peace and happiness with God, will you really care what car you drove? What house you lived in? How many likes you got on your last social media post? When we show favouritism to the rich, the important, the powerful of this world, the social media influences, we run after things that will soon fade away to nothing forever and lose sight of what is truly important. The fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, hope, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, these things will never fade away. So, number three. Favouritism is the opposite of love. Again, the Christians in James's story were making all the right noises, right? When it came to the rich person, anyone looking in at their gathering would have thought, oh, wow, they are really living out God's love. Look how they're treating that guy. But he was fake. The reason the Christians were so keen on him, on treating him so well, was because they hoped to get a little bit of what he had, his wealth, his influence. Maybe they hoped he'd make a nice donation. Maybe they justified in thinking, well, that will do the kingdom of God so much good. Maybe they hoped that the influential people would see them sitting with the cream of society and think, whoa, aren't they really good people? Do you know what? They wanted to be that rich man, to have the nice clothes, the nice ring, the wealth, the status, the power. Their love for the rich person wasn't real. Do you know what it was? Selfishness in disguise. So it was the complete opposite of love. You see, the greatest example we've got of love, the most purest, the most powerful explanation of what it is, is found in Jesus dying on that cross. Jesus was God, infinite, almighty, powerful. But he sacrificed all that to become human. And then he sacrificed that human life he had to pay the price for our wrongdoing. At the heart of that love was sacrifice. What James is pointing out is that if we have God's power at work in us, if we truly have faith in him, then we will love the people in our lives just as much as ourselves. That is true love. The Christians have got it completely one way round. They were putting their own interests first and the interests of others last. So what can happen if we do let God's power start to affect our thoughts, our words, our actions? What happens if we decide not to block it? Well, I'll leave you with one of the most vivid memories I have of my own dad. I've told some of you this, so sorry if I already have. But it's, it just, for me, it kind of echoes what James is saying in this passage. So I remember this scene really, really well. My dad and I had gone to this big event, at this big cathedral in, in our town, to pray and plan about how to reach people with the good news of Jesus in our area. My parents 
already kind of had a plan. So my dad, towards the end of that meeting, said, Simon, here's a stack of what looked like approximately a 1,000 flyers. Uh, why don't you stand and hand them out at the entrance to the, to the church? So I did, dutifully took them to the entrance of the church and started to hand them out, which was a fascinating job. After standing there for a while, in stumbles in a really drunk person. He was in obviously a really bad state. He was really distressed and he stank. And I mean, I really mean he stank. Without being too much about it, sweat, urine and booze. As he stumbled around, he called out, will somebody pray with me? It was the end of the meeting where people were starting to disperse. People had things to do and homes to get to, teas to eat. One after one, they walked past the drunk thinking, somebody else will deal with that. And he continued to call out, will somebody pray with me? Now, I was despaired. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. So I thought, right, well, okay, I'll go and ask my dad. You know, I was pretty sensible. So I thought, well... Maybe he'd give me some words of advice or point out someone who'd be able to handle the situation. As I found him, he was talking to some important-looking people and I explained what happened. Suddenly he said to them, sorry, I have to go. I always remember the look of shock in their face and he just walked off. Without hesitation, he walked all the way up to this man and without stopping, gave him a massive hug. As my dad started to pray over him, the man started to weep uncontrollably. The power of God was what was at work, flowing through my dad into that man's life. I don't know what would have happened if no one had prayed for him, if everyone had told him to stand over there, to come back when he was sober. But I got the distinct impression that something happened in that man's life. Maybe he'd even been saved that day. I don't know. Now, this was amazing to me, but as I thought about it, I realised that all my dad was doing was allow, allowing God's power to work through him. It's the same with Jesus. Jesus wasn't afraid to touch people with deadly infectious diseases. He was willing to brave the social stigma of healing the ceremonially and literally unclean. He showed the poor just as much love as the rich. And by doing so, he brought God's power, hope, and love to the world around him. In the same way, we should allow God's power to work through our lives. We shouldn't block it. We should allow, allow ourselves to show love rather than favoritism. And when we do, we will see God do amazing things. We hope you enjoyed the talk and found it helpful. We'd love to welcome you to one of our gatherings. We meet in multiple locations at multiple times on Sundays, as well as in midweek small groups across the city. More information on all of these can be found at our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Thanks for listening. Have a great day and God bless.